everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and you guys are in for a treat today. We have the easy listening version of Drew Stedman. Not a treat for me because I was sick earlier this week, and my voice is significantly lower. But you're welcome to listen along. I feel like I should be an announcer for Smooth Jazz. That's right. So turn the lights down low and enjoy today's episode. Today we are going to pull together several themes. We've been talking about church history for the past few weeks, and aside from that departure, the week that I talked with my wife about parenting, but looked at church history from Constantine or from from the birth of the church through Constantine, and then Constantine through the Reformation. Last week looked at key heresies and creeds. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about the canonization process and epistemology more broadly, but looking at the canon of Scripture. But today, drawing on how some, some of these themes throughout church history can inform where we're at today as a church. And the tagline today is the, the collapse of Christendom, deconstruction, and language games, courtesy of Drew Stedman. But looking at how some of the themes throughout church history can inform what we're currently going through today in the West with the quote-unquote collapse of Christendom and, and how we can learn from those who've gone before us and make a healthy pivot into the future. Uh, you'll notice if you're a longtime listener that there are key episodes that, that we'll do that tie these kind of meta themes together after we deep dive into some nuanced topics. And today's one of those episodes. So Drew, you put together the content today. Why don't you dive in and give us some context where we're going? Yeah, as you said, Mick, you know, we didn't start this podcast with a thesis other than we want to navigate the complexity of our world and figure out how to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Um, and you hear that each week in our, our little tagline. So there's not a thesis for our podcast as a whole, but I think as we explore these different concepts and topics, certain themes do rise to the surface that seem to be some defining issues. And, and this is one of them. How do we navigate the collapse of Christendom? And I'll explain what we mean by that phrase here in a second and all of its implications in order to present a hopeful vision for the future of the church. And I think that last part's important, that on the one hand, it's easy to critique problems, and at one level, it's somewhat easy, at least, to analyze what's going on, but then translating that to a hopeful vision is where the real work is. And of course, that's going to be an experiment that takes place across the whole church, guided by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I think that's something we want to explore of how do we move towards that together. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today, you're going to find in a bunch of other episodes. And as I was prepping this, it's going to be too many to, to list out. And so I'll try to make note now and then when there's one that seems particularly important. So let me start with the collapse of Christendom. And when we study church history, we see the significance of the role of the church in the West. And, you know, we, we talked about Constantine. And there was that moment when Christianity became an accepted religion in the Roman Empire where their emperor converted. So at that point, it was not a, an official state religion quite yet, but de facto, you know, the most powerful person in the empire became a Christian. And so that certainly accelerated it. And then it officially became the religion of the Roman Empire. And this ushered in the era of Christendom. And what that means is that Christianity became the, the state church. It became the official church of the West. And that really continued all the way into very recent times. 
in Europe and then in the United States. Now, uh, briefly on American history, obviously we are familiar with the idea of the separation of church and state, where the United States, from its inception, has not had a state religion. But rather than a state religion, we have an informal civil religion. And there's a sociologist about 50, 60 years ago named Robert Bella who studied this. And what this refers to is the de facto religion of our nation. And I think it's almost impossible to have a society without something that organizes it and provides a moral shape to it. And, you know, I'm going to entirely skip the debate of just how Christian America's history is. That's not the point of today's episode, other than to say that Christianity has provided the foundation for Europe and the United States for a really, really long time, in some instances, potentially going all the way back to Constantine. So what's happening in our day is the acceleration of a massive change where that is no longer the case. And this is, you know, you could you could point back to the French Revolution to see this starting. So it's not as though this is entirely new. I would say in a lot of places in Europe, they're further ahead, even though Christianity is still the state-sponsored religion in most of Europe. But some of the social trends have been there, have been going on in Europe since the end of the Second World War. But even here in the United States, this this would be language I would use to describe what we're seeing, is that Christianity is no longer the de facto civil religion of the United States. And so that's, when I refer to Christendom, what I'm not talking about is Christians all over the world. I'm actually talking about Christianity being the state-sponsored or the de facto state religion of a group of nations. And that that is a very significant change. And at one level, we can take a step back and not even issue an immediate value judgment on is that a good thing or a bad thing? And We've explored that in a lot of different places, and there's obviously positives and negatives to that. And at one level, we don't need to pronounce a values judgment over this. And we've talked about this multiple times throughout this podcast of the relationship of the church as society as a whole, and there's positives, there's negatives. We even talked about this when this all when we talked about Constantine, when this whole thing started. And so you can go back and, and reference some thoughts there, but we don't actually need to make a values judgment about whether this is good or bad to acknowledge that it's a major change that's very disruptive. And so whether you consider it a good thing or a bad thing, it is a thing, and it's a thing that we have to grapple with, and it's a thing that's not likely to slow down or change anytime soon, probably in our lifetimes. Um, I wholeheartedly believe in revival. I wholeheartedly believe that revival is coming, but I don't think that means a return to Christendom, and nor do I advocate that that's what I hope to see happen. Instead, I, I see God doing something different. So it's a collapse, something is really changing, and it is disruptive. And what this is going to do for us is give us a chance for a new wave of theological reflection. And I think it's important to note that we're not the first generation to do this, and um, that's part of why we acknowledged in our church history episodes the Church of the East, which never had a Christendom. And really, the Church in the East, their entire existence was outside of the Roman Empire and was almost entirely as a minority faith. And that's still what goes on all around the world today. I think of the underground churches in China or throughout the Middle East. None of them have benefited from Christendom. And actually, they've probably been harmed by Christendom because so much of the church was tied to perceptions of the Western world. And so in countries where that's not a good thing, the church is subjected to closer scrutiny. So it's not to say that we're the first people to grapple with this. There's a long heritage of the church that has had to grapple with it. But I do think it's probably fair to say that we're the first generations of Americans that are having to deal with this, at least at the scale of what we're seeing right now. So there's some wave of of Christians in Europe that have answered some of these questions or at least attempted to answer some of these questions. But I think we're staring it in the face here in the United States in a new way that we haven't done before. That's helpful. This is such a rich conversation. I love studying this in history and and looking at, you know, around the time 
Augustine wrote City of God with the Fall of the Roman Empire, and that's such a seminal work that's influenced a lot of Christianity and his notion, and, and this ties in themes of eschatology, and you can go back and listen to our episodes on eschatology, these notions of what is the kingdom of God? What what should we expect on the earth today? And, and it'd be our opinion here at this podcast that when spiritual power, if you will, gets conflated with, or, or spiritual authority, spiritual influence gets conflated with political powers when we've seen probably the greatest amount of corruption in, in the church. And often when these terms, Christendom or city of God, get thrown around. We're thinking of these kind of terrestrial political entities that the church has been conjoined to at different points throughout history. And so what I hear you saying, Drew, is, you know, again, we're not making a value statement on that today, but there is a, there's been a fundamental shift in terms of the amount of social and political capital that the church uh, has enjoyed over the past several hundred years that is different now and may or may not be changing anytime soon. And all indicators would point towards an increasing secularization of the West. And so how do we as a church grapple with that? How, what's our posture towards that? How do we pivot with the changes that are, that are going on in society? And I'll add, um, not only in church history, but even in Jewish history, if you go back, and we've talked about this in the past as well, that if you look at the Jews in exile, you know, after they were exiled to Babylon, uh, a lot of that kind of religious identity that the institutions supported in Israel were no longer supported by the institutions in Babylon. And so how did the Jews re- retain this kind of cultural identity without having the the broader institutions to support it? How did they continue to live out their faith without it being widely accepted in broader society? So, so with that, how do we understand the collapse of Christendom? What's what's going on in the world today around us? And I think it's important to note, you know, I hear the word Christendom used a lot. And so what I am not saying is the collapse of the church in the West. I actually think we're going to see a new vibrant wave of church planting. But it's the collapse of Christendom as the unofficial state religion of the churches in the West. And it's interesting, you know, for those, if anyone is listening and has experience in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, we actually might be seeing the rise of a new type of Christendom in those places, which presents a whole different issue of, of theological questions and questions for the church of how to steward that well and maybe avoid some of the pitfalls. And so I'm, I'm specifically talking about certain regions in the world when I say this, not a trend around the world as a whole. So let me pull this, this conversation into more of a ground level, where do we see this? And I'm going to start by using the term deconstruction. And I've, I've previously shared my annoyance with this term. And as I hear people using this term, I hear several different meanings in what people are saying, and I think for some people it's calling into question all of their Christian beliefs and evaluating what they actually believe or do they believe at all. For other people, maybe it's a synonym for critical thinking about certain things they have believed, but wondering if those elements are really true to the faith after all. And so people use it in a variety of different ways. And something that I think is important important to state is that it's impossible to deconstruct in isolation. What I mean by that is I can't just sit down and think about my faith and deconstruct it on its own. I need to put it into conversation with other ideas that are out there. And second is it's also impossible to deconstruct individually. This is something that happens on a social level, not just, you know, we have this very radically individualistic view in the West, but in reality, the way that I critically think is heavily informed by the way that my broader culture and other people around me critically think. Leslie Newbegin, who really wrestled with a lot of these same ideas, he was a, a missionary to India, 
and he moved back to England and he noticed these trends back in the 1970s and 80s and he started really applying what he had learned in missiology back to a secular British society. And he has this phrase that, that stuck with me, that in order to doubt, you must believe something else to be more true. So we have to have things that we believe to be true in order to cast doubt on other things. And as we talked about in our episode on the sociology of knowledge, that this is happening on a communal social level. And I think that really informs what's going on when people talk about deconstruction. So when some people talk about deconstruction, what they're doing is they are, they're in dialogue with the claims of post-Christian society you know, kind of this collapse of Christendom. And what they're doing is they're using that to try to distinguish between what is authentically Christian and what is actually an American cultural value in this era of cultural Christianity that we've had for a really long time. But it's not really necessarily an essential aspect of the Christian faith. So I think the critical component of that is people, they're, they're not walking away from the faith and their anchor points are still historic Christianity but they're trying to look at the claims of society and, and they're, they're looking at them and they're saying, what if this is true and what if this is useful to help us weed out anything that's not necessarily an essential of the faith? That, to me, I think we have a much better term than deconstruction. I would just call that critical thinking. And what's happening in a fast-changing world, we're having to ask hard questions about what is cultural, what is truly faithful. I don't like using the word deconstruction, and I'll get to that in a second, for a variety of reasons. And I think we have a much better term of critical thinking or thinking in general that's going on with that. And I think as long as we're clear on authority, and we've talked about that at length, then I think those can be helpful conversations. And I think at times, even the attacks, the less than generous attacks from society as a whole, can still be used to help us go back to Scripture, to the Spirit of God, to the traditions of the faith, and say, yeah, maybe there is some truth in these attacks, as long as we don't shift into thinking um, or coming under the authority of secular society. And, and I, I think we would argue that that critical analysis is really healthy, can be really healthy. Uh, I heard somebody say one time, we want to we think critically without being critical. And the, the distinguishing mark between those two is thinking critically it seeks, the, seeks the benefit, it tries to distill truth and then embody truth in whatever context we happen to be. To be critical makes certain individuals or certain organizations the subject of that critique. And so it seeks to tear down rather than to build up. And so I I think we would argue that the church needs to make space for critical thinking and not to be alarmed or put off by those who are thinking critically and trying to distill what's biblical and what's culture. Not necessarily that we have to throw out everything that's cultural, but at least being able to distinguish between the two and uh, and not be threatened by that while encouraging one another to not be critical at the same time where we're seeking to then tear down those with whom we disagree or as we start to kind of be awakened to ways that maybe we've embodied our Christianity in a cultural way, cultural way that's not necessarily biblical. I think we've seen some reaction against that, whereas not all cultural elements are negative. There's, there are wonderful, wonderful things about cultural expressions of Christianity. So how can, we, how can we draw those delineations, make those distinctions while upholding the best elements of the faith, encouraging one another as we do, as we seek to express truth in a more uh, holistic way in the present climate that we find ourselves in? That's great, Mick. Wholeheartedly agree. And I would suggest if that's where you're at, let's let's together move away from the term deconstruction and just say critical thinking, because um, I think that describes that process. So there's a whole other side of deconstruction that I would label by a different term, and that is conversion, where what's happening is people are converting to the religion of Western secularism. 
and they're swapping belief systems. And it's really as simple as that. I'm going back to Leslie Newbigin's quote, you know, what they're doing is there are truth claims, there are value claims, there are moral claims of secular society as a whole. And what people are doing is they're evaluating those in light of their Christian commitments and they are turning towards the secular claims. Now, of course, I realize for so many people, especially in the hour we're in, we all people we deeply care about and love who are in a process like this. And I'm sure there's people listening where you might recognize you're in a process like this. And please hear from me, Grace. And I really do pray that you find the light of Jesus in it. And there is so much unsettling and so much shaking. And so I, I really understand. But I also think it's helpful to label what's going on because it gives us more clarity about the dynamics that we're seeing. And whether that's yourself or whether that is somebody you love, to me, when I start understanding secularism as a religion or a pseudo-religion, then I think it really helps to interpret a lot of the cultural dynamics that we see. And what worries me about non-technical terms like deconstruction being used is I think it actually obscures the reality of what's happening and why things are happening. And it ends up becoming really confusing to us because we're not aware of what's actually going on around us. And so I like just calling things what they are, whether it's critical thinking or conversion. So that way we can see clearly And when we see clearly, I find that helps me to be in dialogue with people, even be in dialogue with people who are, quote unquote, deconstructing. I could have great conversations, and and I pray if that's you, that we could have a great conversation. I could have great conversations, but it's actually the clarity that helps the conversation. So for simplicity's sake, um, to kind of make sense of this, I'm going to envision two distinct communities. One of them are those who adhere to secularism as as a belief system, and the other, I'm going to use the term confessional Christianity. And by confessional Christian, I mean that's really the anchor of their belief system and the defining feature, at least of who they aspire to be. And of course, everybody's going to fall short. Now, here's what I realized is reality is a lot more complicated. If you look at how these two get blended, if you introduce other belief systems, I mean, there's so many different factors. But if you picture those as two distinct belief systems, my thesis is that these actually used to be merged together culturally. And there was kind of this one giant culture that... I've used the phrase cultural Christianity to describe this, where you might have people on on either end of a um, spectrum that were more distinct in one or the other, but society as a whole lived in this middle space. And as I make sense of where we're at culturally, what I've seen happening is a separating out of these two things. So that's what I refer to as the collapse of Christendom. And so it's separating out into two distinct communities, and then people are converting or they're deconstructing from one to the other, where you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, you didn't actually have to choose. You could kind of live in the middle of those. And I think there still are places where you can get away with that. But increasingly as a society, that's no longer the case. And especially the younger you are, and I think this trend is probably more pronounced in urban areas, um, we're seeing this more and more. So if you're an astute listener, you've noticed that I have just used deconstruction to deconstruct deconstruction. Yeah, and even, you know, Jacques Derrida, one of the proponents and most popular philosophers associated with deconstruction, has been largely discredited by philosophers because he's using language to deconstruct language. Yeah, and that's <laughs> where it gets very, so circular, and that's that's where I circular. don't like the term. Uh, I, I think the, the insight into language is helpful, but I don't like the term because I think it obscures a lot of what's going on and ultimately, I think, ends up being pretty circular. So this then is maybe an analysis of, of what's going on culturally. And, and I think a lot of these ideas probably aren't new. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, we've stated most of these things at some point or the other. But what I'm going to do now is I want to use, I'm actually going to use a specific postmodern critique of language. And this is where you get the term deconstruction, ironically enough, is it arose out of literary criticism 
in, in some of the earlier postmodern thinkers. And what they used deconstruction to do was to analyze how language is used in a community or in story. And they would, they would look at the way that language is used and see how it points to the underlying values or power systems of that community. And this can be referred, it eventually gets developed into this idea of language games. And so even though I am not a postmodern in the sense that I do believe in absolute truth, I do think that this is a helpful critique to maybe shed light on where we're at. So I'm going to use deconstruction entirely different than how it's being used in the common vernacular right now and instead analyze language games here. And so this is super complex. I'm going to try to make it really simple and you guys can judge how I do here. But simply put, when I refer to this, what it means is that words are meant to refer to reality. So if you think about that, when I use the word sun, I'm referring to that really bright thing in the sky that's hot. If I refer to the word rain, I'm referring to the watery thing that falls out of the sky. If I refer to chair, it's the chair I'm sitting on. So all words have some kind of correspondence to reality. But what we mean by those words can vary based in different communities. So this is a very simplistic definition, but if I use the word rain in Texas, that actually means something really different than rain in Seattle. If you've ever been in a Seattle rainstorm versus a Texas rainstorm, you'll notice that pretty fast. And that's overly simplistic. But what starts to happen is different communities, they develop words and words have meaning. And then there's this grammar, there's this system of how these words get used and how words refer to different objects or different systems of thought. And eventually the language itself is used to describe a reality. And it's the reality of a specific community. So what I hear you saying, Drew, is that words are meant to correspond to reality. They are signposts, a mechanism we use to communicate in a way that corresponds with truth. However, when you have different groups of people, different communities that use words differently or have different understandings of what that truth is or what that reality is, what that ontology is, then the words that are going to be used are going to take on a different meaning depending upon the community you're in, even when it's the same word, like you use that example with rain, or you might take a concept like justice, you know, so justice to one community might look very different than justice to another community. The word justice to a group of incarcerated individuals versus the word justice uh, among uh, a bunch of intellectuals, for instance. So is this what you're saying, that uh, that this is the challenge that in a, in a world with different belief systems, uh, language becomes almost relative? That's exactly right. And that's where a true postmodern might be tempted to say there is no absolutes, or all we're left with is the grammar of a specific community. That's where I would diverge, and I would say, no, there is absolute truth, but I do think this insight into the language and grammar of community is helpful. And, th- and that's where how I would look at our own culture. We have competing belief systems. So going back to my simplistic illustration earlier, we have the religion or the quasi-religion of secularism, and then we have confessional Christianity. And both of these religions have their own distinct grammar. But this is where it gets complicated because we share so much. And so, you know, to give you a few examples, I'll use specific words. The word love. When I use the word love, is it the self-love and acceptance of humanism or is it the sacrificial love of the cross? And I'm not saying there's not any correspondence between the two of those. So meaning I'm not saying that a humanist would deny that sacrifice is an aspect of love. Of course they would. Nor am I saying that a love that's focused on self-sacrifice is not also accepting of people. Of course it is. But fundamentally, what does love mean? What does it refer to? For a Christian, it should refer to ultimately the person of Jesus Christ and his act on the cross. Whereas a secular humanist, it's going to be a lot more about getting in touch with the self 
and creating space for other people to get in touch with the self. So there's this whole system, this whole grammar, so to speak, of even what that one word means that's based on the fundamental underlying belief system of that community. And the problem is we all use the word love. So, you know, I go to the store and I buy a card that says, I love you. What's that even mean? What's that refer to anymore? We have competing grammars in our culture and it makes things really complicated. A couple other words that stood out to me, good. Um, I would say the word good, historically, at least in the Christian world, has had an alignment with eschatology. So good refers to the kingdom of God, the future of God, God's purposes on the earth as seen in the garden in the Genesis account and God's kingdom on earth as seen in Revelation. And it's, it's that reality experienced in the here and now. That's what we refer to as good. Well, I would say that, that humanism also presents this idealized version of what good looks like, of the, the good of the community that they're seeking to build. And again, there's going to be a lot of correspondence between the two concepts because humanism ultimately has its origins in Christianity and draws a lot of its language and symbolism from Christianity. But at this point, I think it'd be fair to say it has a competing grammar, a competing system of language. And again, it makes it hard because I talk about I want to pursue the good in society and somebody else might say they want to pursue the good in society. And we both agree that that's a good thing to do, but we disagree on what good is. And there's an immediate conflict there that that introduces for us and makes it confusing. It makes it complicated. Let me use one more word, um, the word truth. So what does that actually refer to? The word fake gets used a lot. So again, we have this grammar of what is true and what is fake. And we all would, I would imagine, say that we want the truth because it refers to an ideal and we don't want the fake. But who defines what and how is that thing defined? That's really complicated. So in Christianity, ultimately, that is the self-revelation of God that is always aware of cultural tendencies to distort it. But ultimately, we would find the truth is anchored in the person of Jesus and God's revelation to us. But I think, I think a critique of Christianity and evangelicalism in particular has been, we need to develop that out more. How does that apply to other fields of knowledge and what does that mean? And Mark Knoll and others have written about that, and I think that's a fair point. But if you were to look at truth and secularism, there's actually a pretty big debate even within secularism of truth. You know, I think there's some that would say that there is no absolute, and so it instead is the beliefs of a community and truth is largely derived from social location. And then I think there's another wing of secularism that um, believes that truth can be known through science or reason, and they're seeking to discover that. So there's actually tension within that community, just like there's some tension within the Christian community of how we discern truth. But the point of all that is to say it's a word that gets used a lot, but there's competing grammars on how that get, word gets used and what that word actually means. What does it refer to? And that's a much more complicated question. So we could keep going. I mean, hopefully this just underscores maybe some of the confusion and some of the tensions that we see and we experience in society. And I think it does shed light on this quote unquote deconstruction movement that's going on where I think what's happening is people are getting caught up into competing belief system, competing grammars, competing definition of words that really refer to underlying assumptions about what it means to be human and beliefs of how we make sense of the world. And we're starting to see a pretty dramatic acceleration of trends that have been going on for a few centuries uh, about of really seeing the collapse of Christendom that, at least in the West, defined so much of that for people, even if they wouldn't be what we would consider to be a full believer. Still, that Christendom provided the foundation for a lot of truth that undergirded society. But in, in our generation, we're seeing that really diverge, where we really have what I believe to be our distinct belief systems that are in the process of disentangling from one another and developing their own language and grammar and we're caught in the middle of all that. And so it's no wonder it's confusing and so hard to make sense of our world.
So what I hear you saying is that that's both the power and the problem in grammar and language is that it's developed communally, so it's a powerfully uniting force. But then because it's developed communally, you can have different versions of different words and concepts that, that develop independently of one another and then create confusion because they're used differently in different different settings. And so I think we would make the argument that that's why it's so critical that we as the church today seek alignment with a historical church. And and again, that's why we did three episodes so far on church history, that there have been brilliant minds throughout history that have grappled with all of the things that we're grappling with today at a fundamental level. And we can learn from them. And then to come into alignment with how they've used language around truth, around ontology, around logic, around theology and the scriptures uh, is, a, is a powerfully unifying force. And I think that's where we'd also say secularism has become parasitic, that, that today, I think, as we observe a lot of people grappling with issues of, uh, just name the issue today, grappling with, with a lot of the things that are dividing the church, what I see almost is like two trees that have grown up, the tree of Christianity or Christendom, and right next to it, this this tree of secular humanism that's kind of grown up out of the same, at least to mirror a lot of the, the Christian ethic, but it's it's rooted in a different soil, a different set of assumptions. And, and as the branches have begun to intermingle, people who've grown up in this Judeo-Christian worldview now exploring different kind of social issues and crossing over into these this other set of branches that actually has roots in a, to- a totally different soil. Because the language is conflated up there in the branches, if you will, the language of justice, or the language of equality, the language of tolerance, uh, they've inadvertently crossed over into a completely different set of beliefs. That uh, secularism as a belief system really doesn't have a great track record. It's fairly modern, and it hasn't been tried and tested. I think empirically we could start to make the argument that it's a it's a failing belief system, and yet its appeal, I think, largely is is due to the fact that it's it's reflective and its ethic of fundamentally Judeo-Christian ethics that have been co-opted by secular belief systems. Would you would you agree, Drew? Would you say it? That way or yeah, I, I think secularism has appropriated a lot of Christian verbiage and symbolism to form the foundation of its own belief system. And I think, and obviously I'm biased on this, so I, I can't say that I'm objective, but I do think you could look at this and say that secularism is undergoing some significant challenges right now because it's having to develop its own language and identity, and there's not agreement on what those things are. And so it's largely drawing upon the Christian grammar, but it's realizing it needs to, to move in a different direction because it's underlying, like you said, Mick, it's underlying roots are in a different place. And it's trying to develop the language and the rationale for some of those things. And so that'll be interesting to see how that happens. But right now it's all very entangled still. And and I really appreciate that image that you've given. You know, you've talked about in your house how you have trees close to each other and it's very easy to jump from one branch to another. And I think that's what's going on with a lot of deconstruction. I, I doubt there's a person listening that hasn't found themselves on the wrong branch at some point. You know, I mean, that's uh, it's almost impossible in our day and age. And, and that's where being anchored becomes, or being rooted maybe to keep our metaphor clear in the history of the church becomes such a big deal because it is so complex and so confusing today. And, and to be clear, I am not an apologist for cultural Christianity. So when I look at Christendom and the negative effects on that, we talked about that with Constantine, and there's so many things we can point out in our own culture, whether it's slavery, racism. I mean, you know, there's so many elements where, where I think we see the fruit of cultural Christianity, where we've been content to have Christianity as a civil religion undergirding our society without actually becoming a disciple of Jesus has been very destructive in a lot of different places. And so 
please don't hear this as me advocating to go back to that former synthesis. I don't think God is going to allow his church to be content with keeping some of his foundations without actually following him. There's nothing I see, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that that serves as that being the ideal of the church, to have a lot of social power without actually being a disciple. Um, That's not what God has called us to. So this is in no way meant to be an apologetic for some past era of the church or some return to cultural Christianity, as much as it is to point out the reality of what's going on in our world today and why it does become so important to understand our history, including the bad elements of our history, but recognizing that as we tackle contemporary problems, we want to seek to do so within the roots of God's leadership historically in the church and not adopt a foreign belief system or a foreign grammar and really use the rules or the language of secularism to make sense of our world, but instead dig deeper in our own tradition and our own heritage to make sense of our world. And I think that becomes a really important thing for us in navigating the cultural landscape. And what I love about our faith is we have such a rich history, and Mickey pointed out, secularism is a new religion. And it birthed, it's a sect of Christianity that's now moving beyond Christianity, and it's relatively recent. It has not been tested even closely compared to the Christian faith, which has millennia of, of history and a variety, almost every cultural landscape or social position you could possibly imagine. So we have so much resource within the church to tackle and address contemporary problems, even as we have to contextualize it and recognize there is going to be innovation and unique solutions, but it has to happen within the root system of what we already have. And what we already have is amazing. It's robust. And one of the things that grieves me is how many Christians have just a cursory knowledge of their inheritance as Christians, and then they deconstruct a secularism. It's like, why? Why Why shift? Why not dig deeper in what you already have and explore that? And I think what you would find is a richness you just had no idea was there. And that's my appeal. If that's where you're at listening, that's my appeal to you. Start there. You know, See, I think you'll discover there's much more depth than you realize, uh, much more nuance, much more ability to tackle hard problems as we look at those who've gone before and how the Holy Spirit has led them. So as we wrap up, Drew, why don't you paint a picture of a preferred future? Give us a vision for the church moving forward. There was this theological movement that started a few decades ago called post-liberalism. And like all theological movements, it's a broad brush that covers a lot of different people. I'm not, I'm not claiming to support everything. I mean, depending on the author, I could have some very sharp disagreement with some of them. However, there is a central concept that I find really intriguing And basically what they're saying is that we don't need to try to recreate Christendom. And instead, the church should focus on living within the kingdom of God as the church. And so in other words, you know, using what we said earlier, being really faithful to the grammar of the Christian faith, to the language of the Christian faith. And I I would add the all-important clarifier in believing that that corresponds to God's self-revelation and ultimate truth. And as the church, that needs to be our first and foremost attention is we have to to really understand, dig extremely deep and say, what does it actually mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? And how do we do that together as a community? So going back to what I said earlier, you ultimately have to believe something to be true. That's impossible to be human and not have some kind of belief system that you use to make sense of the world. And you have to have that socially. And so you're going to have that no matter what you believe. I don't care how much you claim to be a free thinker. Everybody requires those two things. You have to have some kind of core assumptions that anchor truth and your view of the world, and then you have to have a community of people that at least to some degree support that and reinforce that. We would literally be insane if we didn't have that. And so I think what this is an appeal to is then to say, as the church, 
why don't we take very seriously what we have in Christ and the authority that's been passed down um, in the Christian faith, the tradition that's been passed down by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and let's seek to live that out as best we can within the church. And then socially, we reinforce that together. So what we do is we become a confessing, believing community. And at one level, no matter what goes on in the world around us, we still have this, and this becomes our firm foundation. Ultimately, what it does is it actually provides a place for us to engage with the world. So let me use an example of where this might come to bear, and there's a lot of nuance to this, so I'll, I'll balance this in a second. But what this view of church would articulate is that, let, let's take an issue like poverty, that rather than the church's attentiveness being on political activism when it comes to poverty, instead, what the church would do is to say, what, what if we took seriously the teachings of Jesus and how we as fellow believers relate to the poor? And we embody that within the church. We really live out the commands of Jesus within the church. And we're less interested in trying to fix society as a whole and more interested in trying to embody the teachings of Jesus in our faith. I think we can take that too far, obviously, and I think there is a place for political engagement and activism. And, and so thank you for those of you who, who do that as a disciple of Jesus. So I'm not saying that that, and I think there are, and this would be one of my critiques of post-liberal theology is I think they go too far this direction and don't take into account our, our role in society at large. But I would say we've been so used to thinking purely on a social level that we haven't taken seriously enough what does it mean to embody the kingdom within the church. And I think that's the corrective that we probably need. And, the, and ultimately, you know, in a lot of places, I, I have incredible faith revival, and, and that'd be another podcast for another time. But I, I genuinely believe that we're seeing some of the early stages of that. But I don't think what this means is that we get Christendom back. And I think we're so used to thinking through the lens of Christendom, we're going to have to learn to think of the church as a distinct community. And to me, that's exciting because it, it frees up so much possibility of what does it mean to be a witness of the kingdom of God and, and in some ways more distinction with the world. There's going to be problems with that, but it's also an exciting opportunity that I don't know that we've had in our culture or at least have rarely had in our culture. And so what happens if we become this confessing countercultural community within the church um, what's great about that is I, I don't think we need to take this angry posture. I, I'm grieved by a lot of what I see in a bunch of different directions culturally, and I think there's a healthy anger where people are mistreated or led astray that's, that's fair, but what we can do is positively build a vision of the kingdom of God that's different, that's it's countercultural. And I, I would love to see it when people walk into our churches, they feel the distinction that they're interacting with a different type of community that's fundamentally different than the culture they experience outside the church. And there's a different grammar, to use what we were talking about earlier, a different way of living, a different way of relating, and they feel it, they experience it as something that's unique and different. And to me, that's gonna be such an important part of the witness of the church, because that actually gives us the place to then be in dialogue with our surrounding culture. If we embody a different kingdom, then that facilitates discussion, right? Because we, we have a different way of doing it. And we don't need to be these angry, mean people to do that. We can instead be clear and take our clarity and, and make that into a commitment of living out our faith as the church and presenting solutions to the problems of the world within the church. And that actually becomes the place of dialogue with the world. And that's what you see in the, in the history of the early church. You know, the way I, I use the example of the way the church cared for the poor, cared for the sick. Those were not concepts the world had ever really seen before outside of the, the Hebrew faith first, but then fully developed um, in the teachings of Jesus and the lifestyle of the church. And that had a profound influence on the world as we know it today because those early ch Christians lived it out in the church way before they ever had access to political power. They still had the church. 
And so in an era where we have less access to political power than we're used to, we still have access to the church. And my challenge to us is let's embody that and let's, in a very hope-filled way, live that out as an alternative vision for what this world can be. And I think that's going to be so powerful and so attractive um, to the world around us that I just don't think has solutions ultimately for the problems that our world is facing. And of course, you know, on top of this whole vision, what I didn't even get to was the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the rest of the church and different cultures that are not experiencing the same dynamics. I mean, we have so much to draw from that makes me incredibly hopeful as I look to the future. But what I keep going back to is faithfulness. Like we have to be faithful. And I am not mad at people who are secular. I'm not mad at people who are deconstructing. I have nothing but grace and would love to be in dialogue. Um, but ultimately, I, I believe that hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that he's given us what we need for this, this window we're in culturally. And uh, what I'm excited to do is say, let's really learn the implications of that and, and learn to live that out. And it's going to be messy because we're messy and none of us perfectly live up to this. And Nick and I would be the first to say that. And so we recognize all of that, but what's our fundamental vision that animates us is that. And so to me, it all comes down to let's let's really be faithful and let's align ourselves under the teaching of Jesus and the history of the church, and that then provide our means of engagement with the world around us. Great thoughts, Drew. Thanks so much for putting the content together today. Hopefully it's been helpful for you. And, and again, we don't share this to uh, use as like a point of leverage over somebody. Our, our hope is that you're taking this and doing some personal reflection. Where am I on this spectrum? How am I thinking about the direction of the church, my personal involvement with it, my expression of, of Christianity and culture today, uh, and then use this as a springboard into fruitful dialogue with those around you. As always, thanks for tuning in. And again, we'll pick up on a conversation about canon, the canonization of the scriptures next week. Till then, have a great rest of your day and week, and we'll catch you next time on Ideology. <laughs> you could do a new episode of Drew's Conflicting Thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Just debate yourself. <laughs> Drew, an internal debate with Drew Stedman. <laughs> I'm debating my own ideas.